Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Jason Horsley, and this will be my first interview podcast for the newbooksnetwork.com. Thanks to Marshall Poe for this opportunity. Today I'm talking to Lance de Harvin Smith, the author of Conspiracy Theory in America. We'll just uh, run right into an intro um, and then take off from there. So I'm talking to Lance DeHaven Smith. Lance is the author of Conspiracy Theory in America, which is from University of Texas Press. Uh, it was released in 2013. I guess that's it, really. Uh, hi, Lance, and thanks for agreeing to talk to me. Hi, Jason. I'm glad to do it. So we could just start, if you wanted to briefly introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your background and your introduction to conspiracy theorem and your evolving relationship with that, with, I mean, not just the term, obviously the, the reality of conspiracy in history and how you came to write this book. Sure. Um, well, I'm a political scientist. I am a professor emeritus at Florida State University. I live in Tallahassee, or I did while the 2000 election was occurring, and I, my expertise is in Florida government and politics. I know the law, I know the regulations and everything, and I watched the 2000 election, and there were, there were crimes committed. That was a stolen election, there's no doubt about it. And I thought that there would be an investigation, you know, when things settled down. But there were hearings by the U.S. Civil Rights Commission, but that was all it was. And so essentially the stolen election, and nobody said anything about it. In fact, what they said was, get over it and move on. And I wrote a book about it. Uh, it was published by the University of uh, Florida Press. And uh, it was peer-reviewed and everything. And it, it listed some of the crimes that were committed and raised a lot of questions about American democracy and you know, what state of development we were in. And, well, you know, it didn't dawn on me until about really the 2004 election when I saw that be stolen in Ohio. I, I realized that this was not a one-off. It, it was a you know, but this, this kind of crime apparently could be repeated. So I started thinking about it that way. It's, 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 I'm ashamed, I'm embarrassed to admit that I never thought about it that way before. But what I did was 
develop a category of crime. Like, you know, you have juvenile crime and white-collar crime. I suggested we have a high crime, or what I called it was state crime against democracy, or SCAD. And, um, and then, I, then I developed a list of these that we, some, a great many, we know about. Um, you know, we know the Gulf of Tonkin resolution was based on a lie. We know that Richard Nixon sabotaged the peace talks in Vietnam during the 68 presidential campaign. We know Watergate uh, was a lot more than a burglary. Um, Iran-Contra. And then there were others that were pretty well documented, like the assassination of John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy. And that's one of the things I've, I wrote about in this book, Conspiracy Theory in America, is that there, there's this tendency, very powerful tendency, to look at these um, suspicious events one at a time. There's a, you know, literature on the Kennedy assassination, a literature on Martin Luther King assassination, a literature on Iran-Contra, a literature on Vietnam. Um, but there wasn't a comparative literature. Scientifically, what you want to do is develop a crime category and then study it, study these crimes collectively and comparatively. And by that, I mean you look at a bunch of them and you try to determine what their objectives are, what their modus operandi is, uh, who they benefit, and by doing that, you gradually develop a picture of the nature of the criminal. And, of course, what this is doing implicitly is is saying that uh, there's a, a, a group of people, we don't know whether they're how, how cohesive they are or not, but that are committing these crimes. And it may just, you know, it may be a serial Criminal. I think there are reasons to believe that. Um, you have the, the Bush family implicated in a lot of these, and and that's you know, troubling to say the least. But it suggests that you know there are ongoing actors in this criminal uh, network that are periodically manipulating the national political agenda for their own ends. And most of those ends are to expand wars or start wars. So one of the things that's very key to your book, which I think is a terrific book, by the way, I really... Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm somebody who, uh, who never had any trouble uh, believing that the ruling class was conspiring in their own interests, and that, but <clears throat> perhaps erring on the side of I tended to believe just about any kind of theory and or at least take it on and consider it. So, But reading the book, uh, even for me after 20 years of doing my own research and just knowing how deep all this goes, the book was quite revelatory for me, but it certainly was a book that if I was ever going to try and open somebody's eyes, and of course I do know people are very skeptical, and that this would be the book that I would want to throw at them. And, and one of the uh, sort of opening things that you, you 
bring to the table is the origin of conspiracy theory itself, the term. Uh, I'll just read a couple of things from the book before you can answer that, just, to, just for listeners who haven't read it. Uh, one of the, the, this, to me, is a key point. He says, Indeed, it is likely that the CIA propaganda program to instantiate the conspiracy theory concept in America's civil culture was directed as, as much towards intellectuals as ordinary citizens. I, think, I mean, that's absolutely been my experience, and the majority of resistance that I've encountered has been from the intellectual branch right. of society. Um, the other thing I just wanted to quote before I put it over to you was a little more specific. On page 90, you, <clears throat> you write, The advances of the CIA in cognitive manipulation cannot be determined, but advancement would probably take only one form, the basic approach would be to disrupt logical systems of thought and self-regulating systems of discourse and argumentation. The conspiracy theory label does not try to form a new pattern of thought. It simply tries to and does interfere with logic that would unfold naturally were it not for the, for the presence of an unnatural impediment. So what you're describing there is kind of an attack on cognition itself, which I realize that, I mean, that's a very deep... We don't have to jump right in there, but if you could just talk about how the the term itself was contrived and the circumstances of it. I think many people are still entirely unaware of that. Well, it originated in, became a term in the political lexicon in the United States um, after the CIA issued a dispatch that went all over the world and told their agents if they heard anybody talking about the, the Warren Commission or the Kennedy assassination saying it was a government crime, they should engage those people and, and solicit the support of what they call friendly media assets. And the dispatch goes on to describe in some detail how to combat that. But the main thing is you say there's no... You know, they were supposed to say there's no evidence of a conspiracy, and these are just conspiracy theories, and people are spinning them to gain notoriety or make money, or they love their own theories, and, you know, it's just to dismiss them. And that's what, um, the reason we know this is in, that dispatch was put out in 1967, and this was when Linda Johnson was preparing to run and one of the things the dispatch said specifically was that people were thinking that it was Lyndon Johnson was behind it, the Kennedy assassination. And after all, he benefited the most. He became president. So, you know, this was a propaganda campaign to try to quell suspicion in the mass public. We, we know this because the uh, dispatch was released through a Freedom of Information Act. I, I think it actually was a mistake that somebody made, but it came out and, uh, in 1976, and there's a New York Times story on it. I also found a response to uh, a London newspaper story on the Warren Commission. A political scientist who was working in the White House with uh, Johnson wrote a letter responding to it uh, to this English newspaper and, and he used the exact words, some of the exact 
words from the dispatch. So you see this thing, um, you know, you see his fingerprints. And, um, but I, I call this, in some of my later writings, I, I refer to it as the invasion of the public sphere or the invasion of civil society. I mean, you know, you get in and mess around like this with people's thoughts, and you've got to wonder, well, I'll give you another one. I mean, 9-11, right? That, that term, we've never called these kinds of uh, attacks uh, after a date. The only time we've had a date was maybe the, the Independence Day, July 4th, but um, normally, you know, it's the uh, Pearl Harbor, it's the place that it happened, uh, uh, the Kennedy assassination, it's the person it happens to. It, it's never the date, but on 9-11, September 11, um, the next day, it appeared in the New York Times, and the guy who coined it, the guy who did it, was Bill Keller, is his name. He was, at the time, the editor. He was a senior editor of the New York Times. He had served as the Moscow bureau chief during the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union. This guy had, you know, undoubtedly a lot of, and has, a lot of um, contacts with the intelligence apparatus. And... He coined this term. Uh, he, he said it was a. He, he described it as a, an emergency phone call. You know, this is an aptly chosen uh, date, and so he, he coins this, and it's picked up in a couple more places. But then it, it rapidly becomes the name of this event. Now, the problem with that is it divides history into before 9-11 and after 9-11. It, it, it elevates the importance of this in the public's mind. And think about it, if we had called it the uh, hijacked airplane attacks, the New York-Washington attacks, something like that, it, it has a much lower level of power to it. And right, it's just one more event in history, as opposed to a defining event. A unique event in history that breaks history into two parts, before and after. Like the birth of Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, they've been studying this. There's um, in the CIA, they it was the Rand Corporation. And, um, it's got like Wolfstetter, who was an expert in game theory. And, you know, these guys were figuring out how to stand up in, so, in a nuclear showdown. But his wife wrote a book on Pearl Harbor and whether the, whether they had been notified and the commanders in the Pacific about this. Um, one of the greatest historians in American um, history was um, Charles Beard. And Beard had in his last book, had written and documented in great detail that Pearl Harbor, the Roosevelt administration, knew when it was coming and where it was coming, and they actually provoked the Japanese into 
attacking it, and um, the administration didn't get the information to the commanders in the Pacific to prepare to defend themselves. And so Beard wrote this long book about it and really documented it, and Wolfstetter comes out with one about 20 years later. She doesn't even footnote Beard's work. I mean, she just, she just writes this book saying, you know, there was too much noise. That's the way they put it. There was a lot of noise. And so this signal just didn't get through, which is, hmm. you know, just ridiculous. But anyway, I, I, my point is that there's reason to believe that the intelligence apparatus in the United States is actively manipulating in not just events, but how those events are conceptualized. And they are doing that. It, it essentially marched us into an endless war. And it, the other connection with 9-11 is to the 911 emergency number in the United States. Mm-hmm. So every time, subliminally, every time we say 9-11, we are thinking about an emergency. And right. It literally brings it home, no? Yeah. And, and there's a, a well-known Nazi political theorist named Carl Schmitt who had written about what he called the state of emergency. And this became the foundation of the, the Nazi government, in effect. And if you read Mein Kampf, uh, Hitler says that when the when the political community is in danger, you have a responsibility, if you can, to protect it and preserve it. And that means by any means was the, was the phrase. No limits on what you could do to preserve the political community. If it's 9-11, it, it puts us in a state of emergency. That's what Smith was talking about. So these, you know, these are ideas that are not well known among intellectuals, but they are known to people like Leo Strauss, who was a neo, you know, the father of neoconservatism. And it, it further you know, supports the idea that the government is manipulating things uh, mm-hmm. in, very, in very sophisticated ways. Various levels, yeah. Uh, let's go back to conspiracy theory term itself, though, because I think some people it won't, it still won't be quite clear to them. I and mean, in the book, you, you actually map, you, you uh, reprint the document, the, the CIA document, where they're actually um, formulating the strategy to introduce this term into the, the public uh, sphere, and then you map the recurring uses of the term uh, conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist. Uh, it's just occurring to me now, actually, that I mean, one of the ways in which this is effective is that it it takes the attention away from the evidence or the interpretation being presented to the person who's doing it. So, you, if you create this idea of a conspiracy theorist, um, that and of course, as you know, that, that and as everyone knows, that's associated with nut jobs and extremists. There's even a law against it in the UK now, which we can get to at some point. But um, Anyway, so that was just my own interjection. Uh, if you could just talk a little bit more about that, like how it was actually gradually introduced into the public consciousness. Well, you see it. I did a, I tracked it in the New York Times. And I say it was very laborious what I did. Today, I would tell our listeners 
that you can get online and go to Google Trends and Google Correlate. These are programs that are free and available to anybody, and you can map the frequency of, of the terms used dating back to literally the 1500s, and you can see when it pops up. And conspiracy theory pops up in 1967. Um, but I, I tracked it in the New York Times and um, did a lot of work doing it and showed that it, you know, just it jumped at various times. So after the um, Bobby Kennedy assassination, it, we see it a lot. After Watergate, it starts becoming very common. It becomes even more common after Iran-Contra. And then in 9-11, about, about um, 2015-14, you see a peak about 9-11 truth that you, you get these other terms. And, the, you know, the public, I think, fights back in a, in a way that we, count, we do counter terminology. So we, we have the magic bullet theory, which you know, if you read the Warren Commission, it's obvious. Uh, it says specifically in it that John Kennedy had a, a bullet wound in his back and in his throat. And to do that trajectory, it means it's coming. It's either uh, it's coming from the front because it's got a downward trajectory. So you can, if you, if you read it, you can see how we came to this magic bullet theory. I call the the 9-11 collapse of the buildings the magic buildings theory, <laughs> you know, because stuff dissolved into powder. <laughs> and, just, and people talk about it like it's, you know, you know collapse. <laughs> uh, another, just on the side, I'm sorry to be, be so random, but um, they withheld, the federal government withheld photos that were taken by from a helicopter on on September 11th, and um, shot from above, and it takes it's a totally different perspective. What we had had before was always looking up, and the buildings burning, and people jumping out of the buildings, and it just loomed over us. And yeah. When you get to the, above it in the helicopter, it you can see it's it's, it's got it looks like a volcano. It you know the, the clouds are called aerostatic or something like that, um, types of clouds that require enormous amounts of heat to form. Um, when, it was, when it was published, the New York Times actually wrote an editorial and said, we should have seen these a long time ago. And they kind of hinted at the idea that this was a, a manipulation of the public, but they didn't come out and say it. And, that, and that's another point is, you mentioned earlier at the start of this discussion that this shuts down the intellectuals. I think that's exactly what it does. I mean, everybody, Americans believe in conspiracy theories. I mean, they, they have to be an idiot. I mean, look, John Kennedy gets killed in the home state of the vice president, and the guy's arrested right away, says he's a patsy. He's interrogated for two days. Nobody takes notes. Nobody records it. And then he is killed in police headquarters 
right there with all the cops standing around. I mean, you'd have to be a nut not to recognize that there's something screwy about that, that there's, you know, it's very suspicious. So I think the, the American people are pretty uh, suspicious on their own, but this shuts down communication at the top, so you never get really a narrative. Right. Yeah, it's not getting the treatment, the academic treatment. One of the things that's interesting to me about doing this new podcast is trying to find academic treatment of this, these aspects of society and how few and far between they are. Because there's no problem finding all kinds of, I won't say lunatic, because actually more and more I'm finding out that a lot of this seemingly wacky stuff is, is based in reality, but it's generally not well researched, not well written, not well argued, and so it's so easy to dismiss unless you're already uh, you know, kind of on that bandwagon, which because we could say actually the majority of Americans also right, yeah. un, you know, underground alien bases and stuff, so, so there's, maybe, <laughs> there's kind of a lack of discernment in terms of perhaps an, an excess readiness to believe just about anything about what the government's up to, I think partly because um, there's, so, there's so little really serious... Uh, intelligent discussion about it, so then that there's a tendency to compensate for that by just believing everything. I think that's right. I, I have a checklist that I look at and when I'm trying to figure out is this real or not. And one of my um, indicators is these tend to occur in clusters. Um, think about 9-11, we had the anthrax letter attacks. And and that, the anthrax came from the U.S. Army, from a strain developed by the U.S. Army. It occurred a week after the 9-11 attacks. And we wrote, it later gets written off, but initially it was said that this was the terrorists doing this. They told us to uh, tape our windows. And, you know, it was a very frightening thing because it, because it came through the mail. That meant it could, you know, if it was just the buildings that were attacked, people would be saying, well, that's New York. I don't live in New York or Washington. I'm safe. But if, it, if they're sending, you know, poison disease through the mails, everybody's potentially vulnerable to it. So that, mm-hmm. that later gets, um, I mean, I, I could tell you the whole story about the anthrax. But, I mean, my point is simply that, you know, those events occurred together. And if you look at Watergate, you have a whole series of events. Mm-hmm. One of the, uh, the Iran-Contra, there are multiple events. And so that's, a, that's one of the things I'm, I've been trying to do is develop a protocol for discerning when we're looking at uh, elite political intrigue and when we're just looking at, a, you know, a, a random event. So in those early mentions of a conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist, uh, was it always in a detrimental or derogatory context, or was there cases where it was more neutral? There were cases where early, I mean very early, like 1967 or 68, when you see it somewhat neutral, but it's, it's like um, Bertrand Russell wrote a letter, the famous philosopher in Great Britain, and he 
you know, spoke about it and it's a, a reasonable theory. And but it becomes pejorative pretty quickly. And and you really don't see certainly after I mean think about this Garrison, Jim Garrison, district attorney in New Orleans, uh, where Oswald was operating and he, he investigated the Kennedy assassination and said it was a conspiracy. But despite all that, uh, we get this derogatory flavor to it very, very quickly. But I, I think you've got to give the CIA credit. I mean, they, this was a global propaganda campaign. And these guys are good. I mean, these guys invented the atomic bomb and they, they are very sophisticated. Mm-hmm. So, so let's talk then about um, a bit more about this cognitive disruption uh, and the ways in which the conspiracy theory, like in its true sense, as in uh, developing theories and interpretations around possible uh, high-level state crimes, as you call it, that involve conspiracy, um, how there's nothing wacky about it on the contrary. So, so you write here, uh, you're talking about back in 1778, Americans began to connect the dots and recognize ulterior motives in the pattern of Great Britain's actions. So, I mean, this is foundational to the United States, it's kind of irony of it. Acts that might by themselves be excused began to be regarded as parts of a system of oppression. This is the essence of conspiratorial suspicion which reconstructs hidden motives from confluent consequences in scattered actions. This logic is not paranoid, it is a laudable effort to make sense of political developments in a degenerating constitutional order. So, and, and you refer to several times in the book about how it's only a conspiracy theory when it involves our own institutions, our own leaders. If we're talking about the mafia or Scientology or whatever, then it's perfectly fine to to describe the ways in which conspiracy occurs and nobody says that's a conspiracy theory. So so really what the way, it seems as though the way that this works, this kind of cognitive disruption, is that um, there's a, by associating a term with an emotional context, let's say, where there's this deep emotional resistance in us to see the ways in which the authorities, the institutions, the leaders that we put our trust in and on which our lives depend to some extent are corrupt, are conspiring against us. We're emotionally invested in not seeing that. Right. Right, and, and the point I made about the, the Declaration of Independence was, you know, here today we dismiss conspiracy theory as a, you know, a hysterical reaction and or the elite do. Um, but in, if you look at our founding documents, they are a conspiracy theory. The, the Declaration of Independence lists these things. It says, you know, they point to that King George is trying to subject us under tyranny. The, the, the other point you made about the conspiracy theory is only when it's, you know, our government and, it's, and they don't agree with it. They don't call Watergate a conspiracy theory. Uh, they don't call 9-11 a conspiracy theory. The official account um, 
but it was a conspiracy, obviously. Uh, you know, the official account is these terrorists got together and learned how to fly and, and work together, so they conspired. But we don't call it a conspiracy theory. We only call it a conspiracy theory when the official account is challenged by an alternative account. Hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's I mean, there's a... It, it's a double sink in, in and of itself. Uh, yes. It's, I mean, in, ter- in terms of it splitting, I mean, like dividing, dividing a person's consciousness in terms of what it can and can't think about. So if the ruling class, the elite, if we begin to question what they're doing, then we are reminded of our lower status in terms of what we're just theorizing. I mean, I've noticed this actually in very small small ways in the community I live, like there's this company that uh, is coming and they're trying to bring a waste disposal plant here. And I'm very suspicious of that because it's, it's a big, it's a corporate thing. And even though they, they're wearing a friendly green environmental face, then that's exactly what you'd expect if it was a corporation, right? So I'm, I'm just naturally suspicious. One thing I've noticed is that, that certain people are basically saying that anything that you find on the internet, if you do research about this, this company or this project, then that information is not to be trusted. We have to trust what they're saying themselves because they're the experts. Right. So, so that, I mean, that's kind of crazy, but you can also see the way people would actually somehow get lured into believing that because that is the, the, the authority. So in this case, and the government is the authority on their own doing. So the assumption is somehow is that where there's power, there is integrity. Yes. Yeah, and, and it's the opposite of what America was founded on. And the, yeah. the assumption is that these guys are out to deprive us of our liberties and we've got to pit them against each other in the system of checks and balances. We've got to stay vigilant. we got to, we got to keep our guns. I mean, you know, the, the whole Article 2 thing in America, despite all the problems with it, um, the, the citizenry thought they had to be armed or they would be taken over by uh, a, mili- a, a military standing army. And so it's, a, it's amazing what has happened. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, this is post-World War II, basically, and that the government, the ruling elites, decided that we could not handle the truth and that they had to manage public opinion. Uh, Not everything, you know, it's not like the Soviet system where they managed everything everybody said. Um, This is, I call it smart totalitarianism. It's where they control the key things. So if you assassinate a president that changes the course of history. And all you need to do is suppress suspicion about that. You don't have to control everything. You, you get control of the national agenda. So here's another thing I would point out is, you know, why do they assassinate people? You know, the reason they assassinate people is because there's a thing called charisma. It's, it's, it's real. And there aren't many people that have it. And if you have somebody who's got it, like John Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, and you assassinate them, there's nobody there to replace them. 
Uh, if you look at American political history, uh, the left was, you know, the charismatic leaders on the left were taken out, and we didn't see another one until Barack Obama. They're rare. And, and that's why we assassinate people overseas. So you can, you can, you know, if you study this stuff, it's pretty, you know, pretty easy to see some patterns in it that, and you can see they're manipulating us. But, uh, you know, I don't, I don't have a good handle at all, and I think this is what we need to develop on who is doing it, and how they're doing it. Uh, we've got these few isolated cases where we can reconstruct events and. Yeah, well, because your book has two focuses, well, it has more, I suppose, but it, it, it does focus on events and, and just a general interpretation or analysis of the ways in which there are high-level crimes and conspiring to commit crimes, etc. But you're also talking about something that's much more far-reaching, that probably goes a lot further back, certainly, than any specific run of crimes, um, and that is much more insidious and much harder to track, which is, you actually use a term that I thought I'd coined recently, which is cultural engineering. Uh, and and I mean, we could but, go but into that. Did I use that term? You did use the term cultural engineering, yeah. I, I, I wasn't going to jump ahead to this right away. I was going to work my way up to this, but I, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll quote you, if you like. Um, well, it's actually it's the beginning of a sentence, rather. You don't define it. You just say the possibility of cultural engineering in relation to 9-11 uh, should be investigated. But the lead into that, to the use of your term, is about linguistic thought control. The 1967 CIA propaganda program shows that the United States government has been actively engaged in engineering America's civic culture and has been alarmingly effective at doing so. It appears that one of its methods is to insert memes into the culture through a global network of media contacts and assets. The scholar most directly familiar with this propaganda machine has compared it to a giant pipe organ or Wurlitzer. So, and this is something that I've been researching myself uh, for, for some years in terms of social engineering and how it pertains to the mass media and entertainment and popular culture and how it's really impossible to, 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 to track it except by looking at specific cases like you did with the term conspiracy theory and then seeing... Uh, and we just lucked into that. I mean, we, we found that, you know, they... they, they publicize that CIA dispatch. I mean, if we hadn't seen that, we would have never, I don't think we would have ever thought they did that. Right. Well, are you familiar with, I think it's Francis Saunders' work about the cultural Cold War and the CIA uh, involvement in expressionist movements and leftist movements in the 50s and just how heavily they're involved in what we think uh, of as, as the culture? Yes. And... Um, Mm. Well, it's kind of scary once you think about it. I mean, you know, they're giving—they're putting words in our mouth. You know, that's what we think. They're controlling our literally, yeah. yeah. So, and um, you—you you actually trace it back to Plato. I mean, it's quite a short book, uh, conspiracy theory in America. So you're not mapping the whole thing by any means, but just in terms of citing references, you trace it back to Plato, I guess, through Leo Strauss and the idea of Plato's noble lies. Um, That's right. So it seems to me that this is very relevant in terms of engineering a society in such a way that the 
the, the collective of people are being culturally indoctrinated and lied to in, in such a way that they will go along with the programs that are oppressing them, uh, well, believing it's for the good of all, and, and actually the, the, those who are doing it believe it too. So, uh, yeah, Plato, uh, just as an aside, I mean, this is where the manipulation of society is coming from. It has a long tradition in political theory, and it was reintroduced into America by Leo Strauss, who was a German, a Jewish uh, German who migrated to Britain and then the United States. He taught at the University of Chicago for decades, and he basically said democracies are weak. They can't, they won't mobilize against a gathering threat until it's too late. So you have to keep them frightened. Uh, in the you know dialogue called the uh, the laws by Plato, there's mention of what they called the nocturnal council, and this was a group that met at night. It's only that you know it's very superficially described, but you get the idea. They meet at night, they decide who should be leaders and who should be killed and who should be arrested and who should be glorified, and you know, if you think about it, wouldn't almost any society have something like that where people, the people at the top, a small group, want to perpetuate their own rule, but they do believe in it. And, and they work together in control of some of the levers of power to forge the direction, not only the direction, but you know, the types of people who rise to the top and the types of people who don't. Right. Yeah, which, in one way, although it seems incredibly complex, conspiratorial, and the rest of it, in another way, it's very logical, because if you create an institution or a society, then you also create the standards and the norms and the values and the conditions in which a person can ascend. So then that would naturally determine the kind of people who, who would achieve power within it. That's right. But then sometimes somebody comes along like John Kennedy and threatens that, and, and I think this group takes them out. I, I think it's a, somewhat of a mistake to talk about the deep state. This has become fairly popular. Hmm. Um, why, why is that? Well, because what it suggests is there's these inner workings way down deep. And I, my own view is it, the, the state is not that deep. <laughs> the, the, the deep state is not that deep. It's on the surface. Hmm. I mean, think about Kennedy getting killed. Um, that was so obvious. I, you know, but... Right. Um, and... And it was obvious, you know, pretty much who did it and how he did it and everything. And, and uh, somehow we are indoctrinated to not be able to see that or the elites do not raising, allowing elites to talk about it. It keeps the, the mass public in this intellectual straitjacket. And so I think... For my money, that's the thing that needs to really be studied, is how do they do this? Because if you look at these things, they are obvious. 
um, Pearl Harbor, we wanted to get into that war. Roosevelt was doing everything possible, but it was, you know, we were isolationist until Pearl Harbor. So you had this let it happen kind of event. You know, the Gulf of Tonkins, which leads to the war in Vietnam, was a, you know, didn't happen. Um, But you spin the event and you develop it so that it shapes all further thought from that point forward. Well, I, I would agree with you, and that's certainly been my approach. This is, 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 I don't, as I said, I don't have any trouble believing that we've been manipulated, and uh, and so I go about trying to determine the ways in which that that's occurred. But I'm aware that for, I mean, because of the very thing we're talking about, for many people this is not the case. So many people listening to this when it's a podcast, um, they they won't have been convinced. And so to use the example of. Uh, the JFK assassination, I mean, imagine, we don't have to imagine, but just think about how many different books, not so many academic, but even academic books have been written about the JFK assassination, coming up with all these different theories. There there seem to be so many different interpretations of a given event, um, and and logically only one of them can be accurate, although, of course, there can be variations in different angles and whatnot, but certainly with JFK, there's, you know, the, the mafia did it, uh, and, and so on, right. uh, and there's even a you know a popular movie about it, which kind of simplifies it and reduces it to what Oliver Stone called a counter myth. And um, but at, at bottom, none of us can really know for sure because we weren't there. We didn't get to see behind the scenes. So all we can do is really look at the evidence. And uh, most people don't have the time or the inclination to do that. And most books tend not well. I shouldn't say most, but there's a tendency to to make an argument and then cherry-pick the evidence yeah. to back up your argument rather than simply kind of present the evidence. Yeah. And I think the JFK is a good example because really, if you, in my opinion anyway, if you do present the evidence, then it's absolutely overwhelming. Uh, and maybe, But maybe it's not such a good example in that it's so much time has passed that by now... Uh, I would say most people, including intellectuals, know that there was a conspiracy behind JFK's murder, although that doesn't stop somebody like George Bush, I forget whether it was the first, publicly saying Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone and nobody throwing tomatoes at him. You know, it's it's, it's very weird, this, how um, things can be incorporated into awareness and over a long period of time, and yeah, and, that, and yet not lead to action. You know, it's, right? It's just a, it's like a, a free floating anxiety. You know, yeah, it doesn't link up to anything. Um, there yeah. was a, you know, um, John Kerry, um, the Secretary of State who ran for president. 
he said about a year and a half ago, he just casually mentioned, because this was the anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, and he said, well, I just don't think we've got the complete story there with the Warren Commission. That made national news. And it was like, and it wasn't like, oh, this guy's really smart. It was like, oh, why, why is he raising this? And, you know, it was really condemning. And he didn't say anything else. And think about the Kennedy family. You know, they haven't spoken out on this until uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. about two years ago in, in his anniversary of Kennedy assassination came out and, and said, you know, it, he's fully convinced it was a conspiracy and that it involved the right-wing elements in the American political system. And, um, but, I mean, that's the lone voice. And if, you, if, you, if anybody would have spoken out, it would have been the Kennedy family. But what that means is, is there's a real danger in elite circles of talking and speaking out. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, but give me just one other example. Um, George, um, George Wallace was shot down campaigning against Richard Nixon. And this is in 1972. He thought it was Nixon who was behind it. He went to the FBI and said, look, how did this guy follow me, keep track of where I was going, get a gun, you know, he's supposed to be this weak-minded individual. How could he have done this? And Wallace said, you know, Nixon had to be in on it because he was afraid Wallace was going to carry the South. He was a segregationist. And that, that would have uh, made it possible that Nixon would have lost. So he thought this, but he never said it out loud. This is all, we know this from people who had talked to him privately. So there's a, apparently in the, Elite circles, there's a, an instinct of some sort to be willing to sacrifice your own life for the good of the stability and legitimacy of the, the elite itself. Because Wallace, you know, he, he could have spoken out and, and he would have been a lot safer if he had, I think. But anyway, it's just a, it's, it's a bizarre thing that needs to be much more carefully studied is how this intellectual mindset is manufactured, stabilized, repaired. You know, it's like the matrix. You know, I think that's a pretty accurate vision of it. They're, mm -hmm. they're actively agents out there, Agent Smith, who, who, when something turns up that's problematic, they go out and get rid of it. Um, there's this, uh, I think, this is just another point, but um, I think they're operating in part out of the theories of Kurt Lewin, who was a psychologist in the 50s. And he did these experiments where he would bring people in and he had one person who was not in on it. And everybody else, he would say, I'll serve y'all this terrible tasting pie. And y'all say it tastes good. And they would do this. And then the person who was not in on it, even though it was a terrible tasting pie, would say, yeah, this is really good. So mm -hmm. they were learning how to manipulate 
opinion by surrounding people. And yeah, uh, yeah. And and there's a there's some stuff coming out lately on the Vince Foster uh, killing. This is the person who worked for the Clintons and was in the Clinton White House who went to a small park that nobody even knew about and supposedly shot himself. Well, there was a witness there who said that his car was not there. This is this has come out now because there's one of the people that was on Ken Starr's commission, which did the uh, independent investigation of Whitewater and some other things. There was a, a witness... Uh, there was a, I'm sorry, there was a, a prosecutor working for Ken Starr who said this was a murder. And he wrote about a 20-page memo that was a, a court order attached to the uh, report. It's generally not attached to it any longer, but you can get it on the Internet. Well, anyway, what this guy tells us is... Uh, he talks to the FBI about uh, like six months later. They finally come see him. He had contacted them to tell them that, that, that uh, there was a brown car in the parking lot, not a silver one like Vince um, Foster had. And he says he goes out, you know, the next day with his girlfriend. They're walking down the street in Washington, and suddenly a person is just staring at them, and they walk a few more steps and there's somebody else that's staring at them very angrily. Then somebody walks up beside them and walks along beside, very violating their you know, their space. And he says, this goes on, it's like 20 people do this. And he said he was so frightened it made him sick at his stomach. It was just terrifying. So I think that there, you know, there's a, a lot of things they're doing. Um, we know about MK Ultra, Mind Control Ultra, which was using sleep deprivation and uh, hallucinogenic drugs and so on. So it's it's not just you know it's not just uh, linguistic manipulation. These guys have got some ways of scaring the the Jesus out of people so that they change their testimony. And we know that with Dave. Okay, that's what you know. There's a lot of evidence that uh, witnesses came forward and said the gunshot came from the front, from the so-called grassy knoll, and the FBI agents would say, "No, it didn't." Mm-hmm. You know, they would argue a guy and not, not just write down what they said. So it's a, it's a, it's a real kind of cloak and dagger thing. But like I said, mm-hmm. I don't think it's all that deep. Um, thinking that when you was giving the example of the pie, it reminded me of that very famous experiment, which I think has been was filmed and everything, where a group of people with the, the lines, watching lines on the projection, and uh, different length lines. Yes. Uh, do you remember that one? And yes. Uh, yes they, the they had plants in the audience who would say that the lines were the same length, when in fact they were obviously not, and the people who. Uh, were not part of that, were not in the know, would go along with that. And I'm not entirely 100% sure, but I think maybe they even claim that they had actually perceived 
not that they had simply been lying to go along with the group, but they actually really had perceived the lines as equal yeah, right. and when they weren't because of, because of that sort of consensual field that they were in. There's also another experiment which is even more extreme, which is a bunch of people in a room, and again, like 50% or whatever it is, are, are plants, and they start feeding smoke into the room. And, of course, the people who are plants know about this and they don't react. And so the people who are there not knowing what's going on, noticing the smoke, they just keep looking around. It may only be one or two people, I don't remember. Looking around at the other people, nobody else is reacting, so they don't say anything. So that's even in a situation in which their life actually could be in danger. And somehow the, the pressure to conform with the group is greater even than one's survival instincts in, in that case, if it's inaccurate description yeah there so i think that's one of the you know the, the theoretical foundations for what they're doing is the mm -hmm. psychological work yeah. yeah, and the herd psychology, group psychology specifically, I think. Is, is, and so, in, I mean, this would apply to conspiracy theory and how it's, it only applies to the ruling elite, that it's, it basically isn't safe to, uh, to see the ways in which uh, our leaders are actually, um, you know, committing crimes and, and acting in ways that are life-threatening to us and threatening our survival. That in itself isn't safe to see, um, or at least it's not safe to admit that you see it, of course, and you don't know for sure, like if you're in a group, metaphorically but also literally, you don't know who's in on, <laughs> on, on the plot, yeah. you, don't, you don't know who... Uh, it, you really don't know, so it doesn't feel safe to be the only one saying, wait a minute, the emperor has no clothes, you want to check who, if anyone else is noticing, and uh, so it seems as though that, over time, that really could lead to a kind of trance state. You know, that, that uh, story about the emperor having no clothes, the, the person who says that, finally, is a child, yeah. you know, who's not indoctrinated yet. <laughs> right. And of course, nobody listens to children anyway. So. <laughs> so I wanted to quote, and this is related, it's not a leap, but I wanted to quote you again. There's a very powerful passage on page 105. I'll just read it out in relation to this. To the extent that national security elites are influencing national political priorities by manipulating the constellation of issues confronting the nation, all of the theories in the social sciences and their associated research programs are studying downstream phenomena while the real explanation of events resides earlier in time and higher in America's authoritative hierarchy. In other words, it is quite possible that the social sciences are studying shadows and that the people making the shadows are designing them for effect. Of course, this was how Plato described the situation of the citizens, except that in his story, which we must assume was a noble lie, the philosophers were helping citizens understand the shadows, not using the shadows for social control. It reminded me that passage, or at least it did today, when I was thinking about it, of that famous or infamous Karl Rove quote. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's not the way the world really works anymore. We're an empire now, and when we act, we create our own reality. That's right. And that's... You know, there's a good deal of truth to that, unfortunately. Um, but it's not, I think what we're saying is, it's not that automatic. It's not like they act and then everybody swings in there behind them. 
is that they act and then they suppress thought, they disrupt reason, they uh, you know, surround people who disagree uh, with them and change their attitudes. And so it's a, it's an it's an active process. It's not you know happening sort of by happenstance. Right. So Schumann's is a kind of momentum there in terms of uh, developing a science also whereby the better you get at it, the more, the more efficiently you can apply it, the technology or the, the psychology of it. We need a forensic political science that looks at high crimes and has <laughs> these ideas like use a voice stress analysis to see when the politicians are lying. You know, if you could have been a really good one of those, right? Uh, that would be that'd be a game changer, you know, because <laughs> these guys lie all the time. Well, I wonder. I mean, speaking of lies, then do you want to talk a little bit about Plato's noble lie and how Strauss yeah. wanted to apply it to political ends? Well, the noble lie, in Plato's terms, was a a fabrication, a falsehood that served a, a purpose, and the purpose was to maintain the political order, to keep the class structure, and, that, and they didn't call it class structure, but that was, it wasn't Plato's thinking. They had, he said there were gold people, silver people, and lead people, and you want the gold people on top. Um, so the noble lie, and he actually, Plato gave a few of those, um, he said, uh, we should tell all the people who were in our city that they were formed in, as, it, you know, as babies in the, under the ground, in this soil, uh, the Athenian soil. And then they grew up and they came out of the soil, but they're all related to it through the land. Um, the idea being, you know, to forge this fanatical cohesion in the society. Mm -hmm. um, was that meant as a sorry? Was that meant as a literal lie? Because it seems it wouldn't hold up for very long once they had babies of their own. Or was that a metaphor for something? I think, I think it's like this is kind of a silly comparison, but like Santa Claus, okay? You, you yeah. tell kids about Santa Claus, and they they pretty much latch on to it, and by the time they figure out it's different, they've already been shaped in a lot of ways. Right, and, right, yeah. That's a good comparison. But, you know, he was, Plato was very explicit about this. Um, and Leo Strauss, what Leo Strauss did was, he had said that if you read the ancient uh, text, the political text, there's no way that people living in Athens or Machiavelli's Italy uh, could speak the truth. If they spoke the truth, they'd be killed. That's what happened to Socrates. He, he was uh, prosecuted for corrupting the youth and introducing new gods into the city. And that taught, according to Strauss, that taught Plato that you can't say out loud some things. And so what Strauss did was go back and reconstruct these uh, historical 
political theoretical text in ways that identified hidden meanings. I actually, <laughs> I actually wrote a book about Jesus and, uh, after I read Strauss, and I had gone to Israel, and I had always thought of the, the Romans as a, you know, kind of a law-abiding people, and they, they brought law to across the Mediterranean. But I went to a place called, um, what's the name of it? It's a, it was a stronghold where the zealots ran away, and uh, Masada was the name of it. It was a mountain, and there was only one little route up to the top, so the Romans couldn't go in there and kill them. Now, they could have easily starved them out, but instead they built a, a ramp out of dirt that was about as wide as a four-lane road so they could march a phalanx up and kill those people. And what I realized when I saw that was, geez, these guys were the Nazis. And Jesus had to be very careful about what he said. And you can go, and Strauss had these techniques for, for discerning these things. He would say, when they quote somebody, you got to go read the quote because there'll be more to it than what is just said. And sure enough, you go through the New Testament, you'll find a great deal of quotations that if you go back and read them, mean something entirely different from the text. Hmm. Um, so anyway, I was just an aside, but Strauss reconstructed and reconfigured political thought in the West. And he, the neocons that got us into the... In, interminable war are students of Strauss. Right. Right, and one of the ways that this idea of a noble lie relates to uh, conspiracy theory, I was just looking for the quote, but it's too distracting to try and talk and look at the same time, um, is, is the, uh, the idea, and you can tell me where it comes from, that conspiracy theory or rather beginning to understand or talk about the ways in which um, the government is uh, conspiring or committing crimes destabilizes that nation and kind of paves the way for totalitarian governments so right. in that context or with that proviso that then it, it becomes a democratic kind of imperative to suppress or ridicule or discredit any kind of conspiracy theory, not just even if it is true, but especially if it's true, because it would destabilize the supposed, you know, the, the faux democracy and kind of tear off the velvet glove and reveal the iron hand, I guess, is one way of putting it. Yes. Yeah, the, um, the, the way that Strauss thought about it, and I think the way that Plato and Machiavelli and others thought about political community was that it was was actually quite fragile. And it, it's interesting to me that elites, political elites, are always afraid that there's going to be disorder. There's something, and, it, and in a way, you know, think about the collapse of the Soviet Union. You know, in a way you can just, uh, authority doesn't kind of wane. It, it, it blows apart in an instant. And you can you 
you know, you see the, the revolutions in the Middle East and they just kind of, it's like they come out of nowhere, but then they, you know, mobilize and make a lot of impact. And I, so I think the elites are very insecure. We basically feel like the things could fall apart any, any minute. Hmm. And so they're, you know, and they share this gut fear. And, um, I mean, think about it, uh, Occupy Wall Street. You know, that was a movement. It was, it, we have a, in the United States the right to assemble and demand a regress, uh, uh, addressing our complaints. And yet our government looked at that as a, as a terribly uh, fearful thing and they coordinated at the national level the disruption of that movement. And they, you know, they went in at night, they identified the leaders and pulled them out. And um, so, I mean, it, you know, it's hard for a regular citizen to, to understand this because we feel like we're, you know, in a system that could never be changed. You know, it's just been very, very difficult to make any impact on opinion and uh, discourse or anything. And, and yet the elites apparently feel like it's just barely hung together with string. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's interesting because it seems as though destabilization is also a, a message that's used, such as with 9-11 possibly, uh, in order to impl- implement political strategies that are already in the wings. So it seems as though there's a kind of, a a large part of this um, social engineering depends on finding and maintaining the exact balance between too much instability and not enough instability. Because if people are too unstable, they might rise up. You know? Whereas if they're not, if they're, if they're not unstable enough, then they they won't be being driven by fear and anxiety and whatnot. Yeah, they won't, if they're too straightjacketed, your society will, um, you know, not implode, but it would lose its its vigor uh, and its creativity. Um, there's a book that was written in, I think, 1964 called The Political Pathology. It was by a Harvard political scientist. He said you actually have to have some dissidents around, that it's important, that if you suppress all uh, challenges, it's like going into a hospital and you get all the antibodies removed in your, your sterile environment and then suddenly a flu bug comes into the room and it kills you because you don't have any antibodies. Right. And so his argument was you, you've got to allow some of these people to speak out to develop a reaction to it that acts as an antibody for these um, threatening thoughts. And I think that's, you know, that's, it may well be what the, the, uh, Civil engineers, the social engineers are, are thinking because they don't. They obviously allow dissent, right? Um, and certainly they don't suppress conspiracy theories in terms of. I mean, not that they. I mean, they would have to shut down the whole internet to really. But but it seems there's, there's actually a lot of um, conspiracy theorizing going on out there, which is 
certainly more than tolerated, I say. Someone like Alex Jones, well, actually, you were on his show, uh, or David Icke, uh, who mm. are painting with a very wide brushstroke and have a huge following, and to my mind, they don't seem to present any threat to the powers that be. Right. The only threat to the powers that be is, is from the inside. I think if, if Donald Trump keeps saying things, I mean, he's, I, I've never seen a, a political leader in the, in the United States say anything like this, but he's, he said he thought the Vince Foster uh, suicide, so-called suicide, was very fishy. And he's made other comments like that. And he's actually you know, drawn on uh, re- stories from Alex Jones. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a, I don't, you know, I think he's, <laughs> I'm not sure he's going to make it to the election. <laughs> but do you think there's also, because I mean, you could also say Hillary Clinton, Clinton promised the, the truth about UFOs or whatever it was. I didn't read the exact quotes, but. Yeah, I thought I wondered about that. I thought I thought well, maybe what they're trying to do is sort of poison the well. Mm-hmm. They, they'll you know put out this stuff that's kind of loony, and then that will make everything else look loony. Because that's part of what goes on with the conspiracy theory meaning is they're reducing everything to a common denominator, so they don't make any distinction between a credible theory, uh, crazy theory. A reasonable theory, uh, a validated theory. It's all just conspiracy theory. Right. Uh, which is true also of, of the general public, it seems, as I was saying earlier. And, I, and I, I've been like this myself uh, to some extent in terms of, I mean, once you start to see the extent to which we've been deceived and manipulated and infiltrated and even our own cognitive capacities have been hijacked, and like you say, it becomes like the matrix and really... It, the, the only honest admission is we, we actually can't tell the difference between unreal and real because right. cause those faculties have been sabotaged. So, right. uh, I mean, I wanted to bring this up, but it was, it's maybe not delicate, but it could be complicated. But you meant in, in your book, you, you, you mentioned this about that um, we need to be able to discern between obviously absurd conspiracy theories and, and fact-based evident, evidential ones. And you, and you cite the David Icke thing, you don't name him, but reptilians from outer space controlling the world, whatever it is. And although I'm not going to um, defend the idea of reptilians from outer space, I did, to me, that was questionable because... Um, I mean, the only thing, the problem with reptilians in outer space isn't that it's a, an absurd, crazy idea, in my opinion. It's just that there isn't enough evidence. Uh, and I think it's a dangerous to evidence. to apply the word ludicrous to anything, because, of course, that get, that's exactly what gets leveled at you or I when we, when we are presenting an evidence-backed theory. But we don't have uh, time to present the evidence because the knee-jerk reaction is, well, that's just ludicrous. I agree. I think that was a, a poor choice of of words, um, what I, the way I see science is you, you, know, you formulate a theory. Think about the Darwin's theory of evolution. You've got a counter theory that's the official account is creationism. You know, Darwin says uh, the animals adapt to their environment. They're selected out by their environment. So we end up with 
white rabbits in the snow and brown rabbits in the desert and so on. The creationists say God created things this way. Now, there's no, there's no way to say who is right if, if you leave it at that. The creationists say, yeah, they're adapted to the environment. That's how God created them. Mm-hmm. They reflect the environment. Well, why do we believe in natural selection? Well, it led us to the discovery of dinosaur bones and missing links, you know, pre-human uh, humanoids. Uh, and, and I think that's the way science progresses is if you have these theories. You don't just buy them. You have to bet on them, so to speak. But then you go look for the implications of the theories. Right. And I think that's what we need to be doing with our conspiracy theorizing, that we need to, to understand or explicate the implications of the theory for of this kind of political intrigue being a normal um, pattern. Mm-hmm. We need to identify some discoveries that we could make. Um, uh, there's a Give you an example. Um, the Soviets have basically been copying the Nazis in, their, uh, in some of their laws. And, and I would look also at the United Kingdom and, you know, they're moving toward a thought police. And it's very similar. Um, in Britain? Yes. Hmm. Are you familiar with the thing I mentioned then about... Uh, outlawing conspiracy theories as a form of extremism, yeah? Yes. Yeah, Yeah, it's a... But but one thing we can do is look at these laws and see if they're copying them. Um, I think if we looked at the Patriot Act, we would find some similarities with the Soviets and the the Nazi regimes. And if you can show these parallels... It would be kind of a discovery. I mean, people are not naturally thinking that our government is copying totalitarian systems to suppress our thinking. Right. But that that's just to say we should entertain all the theories. But the question is, where do they lead? And that's how you judge them. And you can't judge them on their face. You have to give them time to make the discovery. And, if, you know, if you go... Uh, looking for the missing link for Darwin's theory, and you, you go out in the desert somewhere, you don't find any missing links. You don't give up the theory. You just look somewhere else. So it's a, you know, it's a somewhat laborious process, but that's science. And what what we have in the official accounts is is the opposite of science. You know, it is uh, nailing down all the potential. Uh, contrary evidence and dismissing it and then you know cherry picking the data for the official account story yeah often simply ignoring the evidence it's again yeah. uh, so useful if you just stick the label conspiracy theory onto it then you don't have to look at the evidence at that right. point exactly because, right. yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah and one of the ways that 
at least I perceive, but I think it is a scientific method, is that if you are going to theorize, I mean, try and keep it to the minimum, but you, you create a model and then you apply it to the evidence and see if it, if it brings coherence to it, see if it right. makes it more coherent, and then you say, okay, well, that seems to be a working model, and then you keep on finding the evidence, and if the evidence keeps fitting the theory, then the theory becomes less and less of a theory and more and more of a, you know, a valid interpretation of, of the facts. Um, but, it's, yeah. but again, it takes time. It's, a, it's a, a recursive process. You know, we say research. We don't say search. You research. You look at it again and again and again. Yeah. And... And I do think that they, you know, we have a science of forensic, you know, tremendous forensic criminal investigative methodologies and observation methods. And, I, you know, clearly we could do this for high crime, for state crimes against democracy. But it's, you know, I have no illusions that intellectuals in the United States are going to follow that path. I suspect that the journals are, you know, they're gatekeepers everywhere. Mm. They control what what gets in and what doesn't. Yeah, it seems to be more and more a question of individuals doing their individual thing and um, maybe connecting to other individuals, but not with any hope of creating a mass movement. At least I don't have one. Yeah, but if you could, you know, the... the one place that it's possible is in is in the academy because you have people who are taught to reason, who are there to discern the truth, and if you could break through into that element, uh, you might could impact the, the cultural awareness. Mm -hmm. Galileo was you know in prison for the last ten years of his life, and he had no you know, enormous impact at the time, but his theories gradually won out and you know today I mean think about it. if somebody told you the earth is spinning <laughs> and, and flying around the sun at the rapid speed you know your immediate reaction if you didn't know any better would be you're crazy <laughs> you know well, why don't I fly off if it's spinning so it's even though it's counterintuitive they eventually validate the theory and are you familiar with the revelations in the UK that have, I think, have led to this, this passing the law against extremist conspiracy theory, the, the revelations around child sexual abuse in the, in the ruling class? And, yes. Yeah. So, I, I mean, read The Guardian every day. You, sorry, say again? I read The Guardian every day. Okay. Um, I, think it's, I think the British have more open press than we do. Possibly. Yeah, yeah. Freer. Um, America, it was founded. It was founded to be an empire. I mean, the founders said that, and they and they they gained their independence. They fought the most powerful military on the planet at the time, mm. and won. They fought them again in 1812 and fought them to a draw. Um, you know, it's this is a very militarized society and belligerent and the British are much more polite. <laughs> you know, they'll take your land and your money, but they'll be pleasant when they do it. 
Well, it may it may also have to do with being a, a, an older country and more more established, and but also more jaded and more in decline. Well, not that America isn't in decline, but um, something about an awareness that if something has been going on for thousands of years, as in the case of Britain, there's a good possibility anyway. Then. Uh, Eventually, it's got, it's got to come out, uh, and, and this seems to be the case. Obviously, specifically with Jim, Jimmy Savile, it was going on for decades. Yeah, that is wild, isn't it? I mean, yeah. yeah. And once he died, then it started coming out, and then that there was a domino effect—not literally, not socially, because again, there's been a sort of containment whereby it hasn't really changed anything, including the way people think, which is remarkable. It's certainly changed the way I think, but more in terms of just validating uh, what I already knew. But specifically in terms of what we're talking about now, uh, yesterday's conspiracy theory is, is today's uh, you know, news, yeah. 9 o'clock news in, in Britain. I mean, it was even a Guardian link, which was Masonic Conspiracy, HTML, and it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't uh, out there. But still, they, they were talking about a Masonic Conspiracy around the uh, football um, thing. I forget the name. But anyway, so, so it's, it's like... I think there's a safety valve whereby the more and more this stuff is just coming out and, and can't be entirely suppressed, the culture and the, the channels of media do have to adapt to keep up with it, and they have to appear at least to be representing the changing reality. Yes. But it's, um, well, I, I agree. I just think that Europe, if you... Europe and Canada, if you travel overseas and you come back to the United States after, I taught them in London for a couple of summers, and yeah. come back and it's like, holy smokes. <laughs> I had been living in a, you know, a, a manufactured mentality because you, the Europeans, it's just so, it's so different. Mm. Um, parliamentary, there's not the money in campaigns the way there is in the United States. And, you know, it's just a, eye-opening, but not many Americans travel, <laughs> not outside the United States. Uh, well, that's, that's my impression of America and Americans, too, not that they don't travel, but they're much more narrow-minded and, and fixed in terms of sticking to the, to the dominant narrative. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. I think it relates to American identity, you know, Americanism, it, it, that's the only nationality that you can put an ism after, uh, just as it's the only nationality you can put an un, a, 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 a nun in front of. There's no such thing as being un-English. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very insightful, Jason. Yeah. So, so it's deep in your identity somehow. The, the, the nationalism, I guess, we're talking about nationalism, really, aren't we? Now they're talking about Trumpism. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, well, and I suppose he's symptomatic of what we're talking about, really. It's, it's yeah, absolutely. Growing distrust of, of governments and the institutions requires a, a kind of quasi-fascist or maybe well, no, no quasi-leader. <laughs> oh, we're an oligarchy. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And what political theory tells us is that degenerates into tyranny. Mm. That, um, the oligarchs compete with each other for fame and glory and they promise things to the electorate that require brutality and uh, people choose their own you know, to have their own tyranny. You know. mm. 
Are you familiar with um, the term liminality? No, I'm not. It, it, it's actually an anthropological term, but it has various different meanings. I mean, it can be applied in different disciplines. So, psychologically, liminality is when a patient is uh, leaving behind their old identity and breaking down identity structures and, and growing into a deeper sense of themselves. Um, in religious was the original term, anthropologically, it's to do with ceremonies where there's a rite of passage specifically or most commonly from child to adulthood. Right. So, so then they go through this ceremony and in the ceremony the community creates this period of liminality in which all the structures and the rules uh, are suspended and those individuals who are being initiated uh, can do absolutely anything they want. So if you think in, in today's society, in Western society, uh, youths who are growing up, they try unconsciously to recreate that rite of passage by having sex, doing drugs, driving fast cars, lots right. of potentially self-destructive behavior where it's re rebellious, right? Um, but it's a fundamental part of society is this, that in order for the structures to not become completely oppressive and potentially explosive for that reason, like they can they just collapse if they become too rigid, um, you have to allow for periods of instability and, and chaos for the new generations, let's say, to, to, to come into their own authority and, and to, to create new structures out of that, that sort of controlled chaos. And one of the uh, principles of real liminality, like in tribal society, was the, uh, the ceremony master. So that would be certain trustworthy elders who would guide the youths through that period, through that phase of chaos, uh, to the other side without, you know, mollycoddling molly them, you know. Right. Uh, and so I've tried to apply this idea of liminality politically and socially uh, a little bit uh, in terms of the ways in which rulers or the ruling class can maintain their power by sustaining liminality, sustaining a state of chaos. Yes. Well, this has been a good conversation. Yeah, thank you. Before we wind up, I would like to um, just ask you what you're working on now, if you've got anything in the pipeline, or if there's anything else you wanted to, to add before we wind up. Well, I just retired, and I've got some more time now to, to write and research. And I'm trying to put together a small book that codifies some of the forensic conclusions I've reached. Um, the, the, and I've mentioned a number of them tonight. You know, like why do they assassinate people? They don't assassinate people who can be replaced. That we never assassinate a vice president. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> you know. Um, so anyway, I'm you know, I'm still kind of struggling with this, and I'm hoping that some of my students may carry on this program. Um, I've got some good colleagues: Matthew Witt at Laverne University, and uh, Aaron Good at Temple, who's working on his dissertation, and then and, and others. I'm also interested in the tools, the new tools we're getting for analyzing large data. Mm -hmm. I mentioned the Google Correlate. I mean, this stuff is really something. And um, you know, the question is, how do you turn it into an observation method that can help with the high crime forensics? Um, they had the 
the telescope, Galileo, the telescope had been around for quite a while. Galileo was the first person to point it at the night sky. And when he did that, he saw millions of stars. And they had thought they could count all the stars. And, uh, and now they realize, and we're still kind of grappling with this, is just how enormous the universe is. But it, it came from applying an existing observation method to a new subject matter. And I think that there's potential to do that with high crimes. I, I would like, you know, if we could use the airline data and find out, if we could find out where everybody was on 9-11, right. where everybody was when Kennedy was shot, you know. I think it might tell us, uh, might be a lot, but that's more of a, you know, a long-term project that will take you know, more than this generation to do. But I do think that that's the, the way to proceed, is to try to develop observation methods. Mm -hmm. When you think about it, and, you know, when you were crime fighting in the eight, eight, late 1800s and early 1900s and developing fingerprint, and, uh, now they do blood spatter analysis, uh, you know, handwriting analysis, um, uh, look at the fibers on your clothes. I mean, we've, now we've got this really super sophisticated set of techniques, and but it didn't happen overnight, and I think we could do the same with high crime. And it's harder to study because the thing you're studying can kill you. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so you have to be a little careful. <laughs> right, it's like uh, working on a deadly virus. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> This is Jason Horsley. I've been talking to Lance DeHaven Smith, the author of Conspiracy Theory in America for the New Books Network.